I believe every one of us can live our lives as healers. So it doesn't matter what profession you have. I mean, you happen to be an engineer, but I think you're a healer because of the work you're doing through this podcast, for example. You can be a lawyer, you can be a doctor, you can be a leader, a manager, a professor. Think of your role in this life as healing, bringing joy, reducing suffering, promoting healthy growth. And the world needs an incredible amount of healing at every level. And that is the need of the hour. And think of business as a way of scaling love and care in the world. Hey, my friends, this is Nishant and welcome to another episode of the Nishant Garg Show. My mission is to help people get in touch with their emotions and feelings, connect to themselves and being a source of healing. My job on this show is to invite the world-class experts to deconstruct the practices, routines and habits to help you live a fulfilled and abundant life. I have a request for you this time. If you have been listening to this podcast for some time and if you find it useful, please help me in spreading the word about this little show by telling one person in your friends, family or even in your professional circle. This would mean the world to me. Thanks in advance. And today's guest is Raj Sisodia. Raj was born in India and spent parts of his childhood in California and Canada. He was educated as an electrical engineer. He pursued an MBA in marketing and after which he earned a PhD in marketing and business policy from Columbia University. He is a distinguished professor of global business and whole foods market research, scholar in conscious capitalism at Babson College. He is also the co-founder and co-chairman of Conscious Capitalism Inc. He has published 10 books and over 100 academic articles. His work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal. The New York Times, Fortune, Financial Times, The Washington Post, The Boston Globe, CNBC and many other media outlets. He co-authored the book Conscious Capitalism with the CEO of Whole Foods, John McKee. In this episode, Raj details about his healing journey, blending feminine and masculine energy, discovering and fulfilling one's unique purpose. about his psychedelic ayahuasca experience and much much more please enjoy this wide ranging conversation with raj sisodia raj welcome to the show thank you rishan happy to be with you It is an honor to have this conversation with you and I was wondering where I can start from because there are so many directions that I can go in. So I thought I will ask you what does your name mean? Your first name is Rajendra. Could you tell us the meaning of your first name to our listeners? So Indra was the god of the kingdom of gods, right? So he's like the king of the gods in a way. I think that's what it means. you know and in hinduism we have a lot of gods obviously right so and that's organized into a uh, kingdom and indra apparently runs that so that's what that's i think what that means do you remember how you got this name from your parents you know i think it was my mother i mean this is i've never asked but i think my mother chose that and i think it could have been because uh, when she was uh, a young woman i think the uh, popular actor at that time was rajendra kumar you know so it may have been inspired by that it was a very common name in india back then i will give a quick context on rajendra kumar he was 
the renowned actor in Bollywood industry in India? He was known as Jubilee Kumar because all his movies became silver jubilees. They ran for at least 25 weeks in the in the theaters. Yes. And Raj, I read few things from one of your personal writings, The Full Circle, and you described about your upbringing, your childhood. Could you share one of your memorable childhood moments with our listeners? Well, so after I was born, my, my father was in college at the time that I was born. And so I really didn't see him very much until I was seven years old, because he was always away getting his bachelor's, master's, and, and then PhD in Canada. So he went away. And, and meanwhile, we were living in the village, my father's village, which was a, a very feudal kind of a system. My grandfather was the known as the Thakur, or kind of the overlord of the village, the largest landholder, the biggest employer, etc. But it, it came from a very feudal, a very, very uh, harsh patriarchal kind of a, a background. So that's my memory of growing up there with tractors and horses and, you know, camels and, you know, being out on the farm, my uncles hunting and shooting rabbits and uh, other things like that. So it was, uh, it was a very rural kind of uh, upbringing for the first several years. Did you learn to hunt or shoot? I did later on as a teenager. Because until seven, we were in India. And then my father came back from Canada with his PhD. And, and then soon we moved uh, to Barbados, where he got a job with the British West Indies Sugar Corporation. And then we moved to California for two years and then to Canada for a year. So from seven to 12, I was abroad. And then went back to India when I was uh, almost 12. And and then in those teenage years, getting reconnected back to that village culture. You know, I come from this uh, warrior caste called the Rajputs. And it's very much a great emphasis on all of these kinds of things like hunting and shooting and all of those. So I, I had, my father got me my own gun. And for a while, you know, I became very <laughs> avid. Add that, and and I was killing and shooting animals of all kinds, if if you know, just for target practice. And, and then eventually, I got tired of that, and I said, "Wow, what am I doing? Why am I doing this?" So I became more of a pacifist. I stopped killing for no reason. But but that was kind of the culture, you know. How was it like for you to live abroad between the age of seven and twelve, and moving back to India? How? was a culture shock for you and how did you adapt to the changing environments? Well, you know, I think young children are very adaptable. So I think leaving India was a big change because uh, when you go from living in a little village without running water or electricity, and then the last two years from the age of five to seven, I was living in a city, small city called Atlam, with my mother's half-brothers and her sister. We were all in, the, in, a, in a school there and living in a house without our parents. But then to go from there suddenly to be you know, in an airplane and going to London and watching the changing of the guard and then going to Barbados, it was <laughs> a huge, huge change. It was exciting. It was fun at that age, of course. And you, know, you adapt very quickly. I think looking back at the whole uh, span of it, I think what, what it did is give me, first of all, this sense of an outsider's perspective. 
In other words, I would see things or notice things that others may not, right? simply because I had that outsider lens. And that carried on even when I came back to India. Because I, when, when we went abroad, I saw things from the lens of a, a child who had grown up in rural India. But then when we came back from, from the West, back to India, I could see some of the uh, practices and rituals and traditions and, and so forth from the lens of sort of a modern Western perspective. And, and I noticed things that other, you know, my cousins and uncles did not, or they took for granted. So I think it, it gave me that, that outsider lens and some degree of objectivity. It also made me very adaptable. You know, we moved so much, all these different countries in a, in a short span of time. I think I had eight or nine schools before I graduated high school in four countries. I feel like it made me flexible and adaptable, but also that I did not really put down deep roots anywhere. So I'm kind of like one of those plants that floats without, you know, without having their roots in a, in a soil, per se. <laughs> kind of a floating plant. <laughs> you can put me anywhere. I will feel comfortable. But I don't really, as I said, put down deep roots. So you, earlier in the conversation, you mentioned that you were away from your father up until age of seven. Did you have a good relationship with him after that? No, I would say it was a very difficult relationship for two reasons. One is that that lack of connection at the, at a formative age. I mean, I have three children. I cannot imagine not knowing them until they're seven years old, right? So that did not happen. And therefore, even when yeah, he did come back into our lives, my life, there was always a distance. And you know, he was kind of this larger-than-life figure. And I was this kid who had been in a village. You know, so he was kind of uh, overwhelming in a way. Secondly, his persona and his being was the opposite of mine. So I'm much more like my mother. You know, my mother is very gentle and trusting and peaceful and, you know, all of those, just unconditional love. And and my father is, uh, is kind of like his father. He's, he's sort of a harsh, tough patriarch. So the value system that he cared about and that he embodied was very different than what I was showing up as. And therefore, I think, you know, he did not see me as the kind of son that, you know, that, that normally he would have wanted, I think. And he saw all of my qualities, the things that came naturally to me, you know, my trusting nature, my idealism, my sort of harmony-seeking, you know, peace-loving uh, way of being. And I was quite, you know, in my head in many ways, I was quite academic and intellectual. I was not street smart. So he didn't respect all those things. and. He, he kind of wanted me to be the opposite of what I was. And so that, that made me very confused because here's somebody I look up to and idolize, and he's telling me everything that uh, comes naturally to me is, is kind of a weakness, and I need to be the opposite of it. And so that led to a very uneasy... Uh, that's not a formula for being happy, right? If you're, if you're denying your own you know, truth and who you are. And so that continued... You know, I had kind of an uneasy relationship with him. I never felt seen or really appreciated or respected. And that all of that came to a head many years later when I set off on my own. I came to the U.S. I got a full scholarship. I was supporting myself. And then I decided to, I wanted to marry somebody outside of the community, outside of our caste, right? Somebody who was Asian, but not Rajput. You know, she was from Nepal. Hindu, same religion, but different caste. And at that point, you know, it's just all hell broke loose. And he, he 
completely refused to accept that. And, you know, it became a huge, huge issue between us. I mean, he threatened to kill himself. I mean, if I did that, it was just, it was a tough time in my life. And I had to ultimately stand up for myself and say, I cannot let him dictate my life and I have to be who I am, you know. And uh, so that became a breaking point between us. I was, in, in a way, I was, yeah, I was cut off for five years, estranged from him. You know, we had no communication for five years. And then we sort of reestablished things after that a little bit, but... It was always uncomfortable. Thank you for explaining your vulnerable story, Raj. You mentioned that your dad wanted you to be something else. What was that? Well, he wanted, you know, I think maybe many fathers are probably like that. You want your son to be kind of like a mini you, right? And offering take you, you know, sort of embody your energy into the world. So I think he would have wanted me to be much more aggressive, rough and tough is what he called it, more sort of street smart was another phrase that he used, you know, to embody more of that sort of Rajput warrior energy, the hyper-masculine energy, you know. But what, what I saw when we went back to India, and I was a kid who had been in California during the 1960s, I had seen the civil rights movement. I had seen the anti-war protests, the hippies. You know, I had seen Martin Luther King getting killed, Robert Kennedy getting killed. I had seen the moon landing. I mean, I had experienced sort of the highs and lows of human existence out here. And, and I had been awakened to the larger reality of the world. And then we go back to India and I, I, I then see that system that we had in our village with my grandfather being the overlord and then his sons kind of being the next generation and then their kids and, and the way the whole system was deeply abusive it was misogynistic the women were really had no freedom they had no rights no power in that system you know my grandfather would yell and scream at them and they would just sit there with their heads covered not say a word there was deep unhappiness nobody had the freedom to determine their own lives you know, the grandfather, the patriarch basically decided everything, who you're going to marry, what you're going to do. You know, you couldn't just go off and create your own life. You know, even my father got pulled back by my grandfather into that. He had kind of escaped for a while, living around the world. But ultimately, my grandfather said, you need to come back and do your duty to the family. And so my father gave up his career and went back to India. You know, the consequences of all of that were just so much suffering and unrealized human dreams and potential. All my uncles ended up, you know, living terribly sad and painful uh, lives. There were suicides. There were uh, all kinds of, you know, painful things that happened uh, in that family. One of my uncles went mad and others became alcoholic. I mean, there was just a lot of that. So I saw the consequences of a system that is purely based upon too much of this one kind of energy, right? This domination, aggression, winning, work, striving, all of that, right? That's all my father, grandfather's, my father's side of the family was about all striving and no love. Right? It was tremendously harsh. And then on the other side, I saw my mother's family, which was all love and no striving. And, uh, you know, nobody really had any sense of responsibility or wanting to do something. You know, it was just about enjoying life. And they had the land and they had the money to do that. But over time, both of those systems collapsed. One, because it was all striving and no love. And the other, because it was all love and no striving. And I think my journey has been to see 
how can one actually combine both of those, the healthy aspects of the masculine and the healthy aspects of the feminine? So how can we have striving and strength and love and caring and inclusiveness? That's really kind of been my role, I think, to play to a degree. How do you find the balance between loving and striving to have more in your own personal life and personal relationships? Well, I think it's it's just becoming more self-aware and exploring these themes and ideas over time. I knew that I was more like my mother and that kind of bothered me because I was trying to uh, impress my father in the world, right? I mean, you know how in our, our culture in India, and I think many cultures, the feminine is kind of seen as weak. Yes. And if somebody is described using feminine kind of descriptors, then that, that's almost an insult, right? Especially if you say that to a boy. And so, <laughs> so those things were seen as weaknesses in me. It's over time that I came to appreciate, and really I think for me a, a big turning point was uh, two years ago, yeah, two and a half years ago, when I turned 60 and I worked with a coach for the first time. And, and she heard me describe the trajectory of my life my work life as well as my background with my father and my mother and all of that. And then she said that, do you realize that you have been honoring your mother with your work the last 15 years? You spent 45 years trying to impress your father. And that was you know, to no avail. But then you discovered your true path, which is to bring her energy into the world of business through these books, Firms of Endearment and Everybody Matters. And then Shakti Leadership, which was a book that I wrote, which was about the integration of the masculine and the feminine with a woman named Nilima Bhatt. And all of these kind of gave me a deeper understanding and appreciation for the fact that, you know, as human beings, you know, we are born with genders, right? Most of us with that binary kind mm -hmm. of gender. But that doesn't define the totality of who we are. And in our Indian tradition, we actually have this depiction of what's called the Ardhanareshwar, the god figure who is half male, half female. Right? It's Shiva on the one side, the masculine, right, and Parvati on the other side. So it's it's the same human being, but it's a blend of masculine, feminine. And I think that's ultimately the realization that for us to become whole, we need to connect with that suppressed other side of ourselves and integrate that within within ourselves. So as Carl Jung said, every man has an inner woman and every woman has an inner man. And we need to connect with that energy so that we can manifest what's needed. You can show up with strength and courage, or you can show as needed or in another situation with gentleness and love and humor. And in fact, I've come to think of that even beyond just masculine, feminine, also to elder energy and child energy. Right? You can have the wisdom and meaning and purpose and transcendence, and you can have the joy and innocence and, and, and play and creativity and humor. But those are all energies that exist within us, and, and most of them are dormant. And we are overplaying one of them, and we are neglecting the others. And when you overplay one, it becomes toxic. It becomes so the hyper-masculine. So what is healthy in, in the masculine is the strength, courage, resilience, focus, structure. Right, discipline, determination. But if there's no feminine, then it becomes uh, aggression, hyper competition, winning at all costs, right? The hyper masculine. And so now I'm much more sensitive and aware of, about that and that I need to 
cultivate in my case i think some of the feminine qualities have come naturally just you know my mother brought me up as a single mother for the first 7 years and i inherited more of her traits in any case so i think for me the interesting growth is how do i bring more of the healthy masculine energy in how do i cultivate some of those qualities some of them i have but there are others that i can stand to cultivate what are the concrete practices you have on an everyday life to cultivate more of healthy masculinity and be more self-aware and awakened so for me nishant is simply awareness you know it is simply saying and you know and we have this framework we use in the book shakti leadership which is around polarities and so masculine feminine is a polarity right so it's not about saying one is good one is bad it's about saying these are both two essential aspects of what it means to be human and what we need to do as humans is to manifest the healthy qualities of these these of these polarities so and your default might be in one or the other which is okay but when you start to find yourself going into the the negative side of that polarity you know so let's say that if you're stuck in the feminine and you're caring and nurturing but then you find yourself becoming overly sentimental or needy or or kind of a helpless feeling or dependent or and so forth then then you say you know what what that calls for is to dial up the healthy masculine to bring some structure some order some discipline right you know some courage and so forth so you you consciously become aware of when you're slipping into a different state and then having that framing in mind be able to then cultivate the uh, or or dial up the other side i think for me at least i can you know just by recalling certain thing i can actually get into a different state i read few things in the preparation of this conversation that you went for a shamanic experience you also went to a silent retreat in upstate new york and you also went to a spiritual journey in the himalayas was it two and a half years ago or something around the time yeah all of this was in 2018 could you double click on all of these experiences and share with us what were your breakthroughs and what changed or shifted in your life in brief yeah so the context for this was uh, two things so one is uh, that's the year i turned 60 and that's a big turning point or not a turning point but that's really kind of a, a point in your life you know it's kind of there's a midlife crisis around 40 and i think this is kind of <laughs> three quarters life crisis or at least a milestone milepost for us to think back and look ahead you know that's a lot of life that i've already lived and what have i learned so and it kind of it sneaks up on you right where you suddenly well, how did i become 60 years old that's 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 crazy so there was an occasion for reflection that came with that and then i was writing a book about healing and i had just started uh doing the research and uh collecting the stories and you know all of the work that goes into writing a book and then i got i would say four different women kind of intervened in my life at that point it was all friends and one of them was my co-author nilima another is lynn twist who started the pachamama alliance who's become a dear friend uh, then i worked with a coach for the first time that year and another friend who who told me about these profound experiences and breakthroughs that she had had with uh, plant journeys and she didn't explain it beyond that and i didn't quite understand so she just said why don't you come and uh, you know experience it for yourself 
And so I went expecting that they were going to give me a little potted plant or something. And I, and I was just, <laughs> <laughs> but it turned out to be a plant journey, which was based upon these naturally occurring substances that have been part of many human civilizations that cause an altered state of consciousness. And, and through that, you know, what you're able to do, and I've subsequently I started reading up a lot about this and learning about it. And the book I recommend on that is Michael Pollan's book, which is uh, How to Change Your Mind, which is his investigation into this whole realm of, of psychedelics and what they do and how they can be used to promote healthy growth in us and understanding about life. And so the first experience that I had was around uh, this time, March of uh, 2018, where I experienced a particular plant. I think it came from the sassafras tree originally, and it's supposed to be a heart opening. Now, later on, they've synthesized that as MDMA. <laughs> it's the same active active ingredient. I have and, experienced that. Right, MDMA. So that's, that's called a heart opener, right? Yes. And for me, and for everybody, it's a different experience, but for me, it was... It was really taking me back to early childhood and almost showing me a movie of, of, of what that scene was like in the village when I was you know, one year old, one or two years old. And it was quite vivid. And basically, it showed all of the harshness and abuse and exploitation and misogyny that was going on. My grandfather coming in from the, out, you know, the outer part of the house to the inside where all the women and children were, and he would yell and scream at them and call them horrible things. The women having no power with their heads covered up, sitting on the ground. But then the women would abuse each other, you know, kind of that's a trickle-down tyranny that happens in that environment. I was a baby, and one of my aunts would put opium in my mouth just to keep me quiet so that my mother could do more work in the kitchen. So it was everybody abusing and using everybody else, you know. And within that environment, I saw these three points of light. And that was the innocence that still remained in a, in a very corrupted environment. And that was my mother and me as a baby, of course. And then my one of my cousins was just a year and a half older than me. That there was islands of innocence or points of innocence that could survive in a sea of, of darkness and corruption. And so this idea of a return to innocence kind of got implanted in me at that point. We are all born innocent. And then we in a way, become corrupt, or we get corrupted, and that becomes our essence, right? We use each other, we lie, we steal, we cheat, you know, we do all whatever it takes to get ahead in the world and to win. And that's kind of the masculine world that exists, right? I mean, this one war after another, and people basically, <laughs> we use our intelligence in many time, many cases to trick each other and you know, abuse each other, right? And take advantage of each other. And, you know, I had a PhD in marketing, right? So, I mean, there's just a lot of that that goes on in marketing, right? This, so I had this realization that, and I thought about the people in my life that I resonated with. They're the ones who have retained some kind of innocence, you know? It's uh, not the innocence of a helpless child, but the innocence of a knowing adult. It's the chosen innocence of a... Uh, mature adult rather than the helpless innocence of a child. It's the innocence of the other side of wholeness. And so that was kind of a, um, a revelation to me and a way to look at things and, a, and an aspiration in a way. How do we get back to that kind of innocence? Because I think that's what's destroying the world and destroying you know society and the planet is that loss of innocence. Because through that, then we inflict suffering on others and on each other. So that was one experience. And then as I was starting to work on the book, 
my three friends told me, you know, you're writing about healing. And that's kind of a sacred undertaking to write a book about healing. Have you healed yourself or have you looked at what needs to be healed within you? And I said, I don't have any time for that. I've got a book deadline in October. You know, I have to get going here. And they said, no, book deadlines are flexible. You need to take some time. You know, you're always rushing from airport to airport and book project to book project. And, you know, slow down. Be with yourself. Be in nature. Understand yourself at a deeper level. Find out what needs to be healed within you before you write about healing for the world. So fortunately, I listened. And then I said yes to several experiences that I had previously turned down. So the first was a Shakti leadership spiritual journey into Leh Ladakh uh, region of India, which is on the border with Tibet. So I wrote this book, Shakti Leadership with Nilima, and she's been doing these spiritual journeys. Many of them are in India, but also they've been in Israel and Egypt and Eastern Europe and other places as well, Peru. So this was a journey that was happening actually right when I would turn 60. It was in June. My birthday is June 28th. So I would literally turn 60 up there in the high Himalayas if I went on. And I, I did. I went on that trip. And, you know, if you're writing about healing and suffering, you know, this is the region that has the deepest Buddhist tradition in India. And it's, you know, it's also about the Tibetan influence there as well, right? Tibetan Buddhism. So there was a lot of deep learning in that realm through that experience and, and a lot of reflection. Then I came back and I, I had said no, but then I called and said yes to a silent retreat in upstate New York that was uh, about 35 people. It was hosted at a place called Peace Village, run by them. So I, you know, I could see that there was a lot of feminine influence that was coming to me that year, right? These are all, I would say, more feminizing experiences when you open your heart, right? And, and these are all women who are guiding me towards these things. And so I went to that, ups, that retreat and four days of silence in the company of a lot of people, some of whom I knew, I mean, they're some of the leading thinkers in management and leadership and so forth. And I just opened up to some portal that uh, I didn't know existed, but I was receiving so much wisdom in those three or four days that I just filled out 40, 50 pages in, the, in a notebook of the insights that I was getting you know, about life and about, about healing and about happiness and so forth. And so that was pretty profound. And then I had interviewed Lynn Twist, the founder of the Pachamama Alliance, for my book. And she called me the next day after I had interviewed her. And she said, Raj, you were in my dream last night. And I got a message that you need to come with us on this trip that we're going to Ecuador in August for 10 days. It's the founder's journey with she and her husband and John Perkins that we take a group of about 17 people on a 10-day journey deep inside the rainforest. We're going to stay with two different native peoples the Achuar and the Zapara. You have many shamanic healing experiences there. Deep embedded in nature, you will understand your our connection to nature and how we need to heal. You will learn more in those 10 days than you will learn in years of research. <laughs> pretty much ordered me to do that. And uh, so I said yes. And that turned out to be a really profound experience. First of all, just in terms of being in the rainforest and understanding how important that is and how we have lost connection to nature. You know, we don't come into this world, we come out of this world. You know, we are formed, you know, by the substances of nature. We are as much a part of nature as a tree or, or, a, or any creature that exists. And yet we have separated ourselves, right? It's us and nature. So we've got that sort of duality between us. 
And and these people, these indigenous people of the uh, Amazon, really remain connected to the nature in a deep way. Right? They connect to the spirit of things, even to rocks and to mountains and to trees and to all living things. Right? They don't connect just from the head. They connect from the spirit and the heart. And, and there's a deep knowing there and how everything is interconnected and interdependent. And so we had a lot of healing experiences with the shamans, dream interpretations. You know, one of their big beliefs is that the world is as you dream it. And therefore, dreams really matter. You know, everything that you see manifested in the world, other than what is you know, done by nature, actually existed inside a human mind before it existed in the physical plane. Right? So it has everything starts with a dream. And if you don't like what we're seeing, that means we need a new dream. We need to dream a new dream. <laughs> Right, so those kinds of things, and then uh, one of the uh, highlight experiences there was a an ayahuasca experience, another psychedelic uh, experience with uh, a real shaman who took us on a hike first to a sacred rainfall where we had a cleansing ceremony of letting go, you know, with with some tobacco that you know he put inside us. You know, we kind of snorted. They they. They soak tobacco leaves in water, and then that, that that liquid you kind of take in through your nostrils, and it just creates this uh, instant sensation. So, and, and then we hike to the shaman's little uh, settlement there in his little hut. And meanwhile, they had prepared this brew, the ayahuasca, like a tea of two different plants that exist in the forest. And it was about dusk at that time in the evening. We went and we took a bath in the river that flowed nearby. And then we changed our clothes, and then they had laid out banana leaves on the dirt floor there, on the ground. And we sat in a semicircle around the shaman, and he was whistling and blowing and chanting into this brew, and then handing each of us one by one of this brew, and we took it. Mm -hmm. And then we went and laid down. And, you know, it was a lunar eclipse night, and the sky was spectacular. You could literally see six or seven planets lined up from horizon to horizon and all the stars. So it was a very surreal scene. And we lay there and it got dark and then the shaman came and he kind of, you know, with his headdress and he swished branches over us and he's still whistling and chanting and all of those things. And then slowly this started to take effect. And, and you know, ayahuasca is considered a sort of grandmother plant. It connects you to a grandmother energy. It connects you to nature, which is our ultimate mother, right? Pachamama means the mother mm -hmm. planet. And, and so that was the feeling I got. It was like lying in your mother's lap. And I heard a baby crying somewhere in the distance. And that immediately triggered in me emotions. And, you know, I had not been able to cry for 20 years before that. I had been completely emotionally blocked and bottled up for various reasons. And, you know, and all this grief came pouring out of me. You know, people had died and all kinds of sad things had happened. And I was not able to summon my tears. I was, had that wall around my heart. And suddenly it all melted and I was just crying for a very long time. And there were some people helping in the ceremony. You know, they were holding me in helping me get through that phase. And then I started to see visions. I had gone on this trip to learn about healing for myself, for business, for the planet, for society. And so I started seeing visions. So one of them I saw was started out with, you know, an image of an open palm and a, and a closed fist. 
and saying that the world has too much of this closed fist energy and not enough of this open palm energy where we receive and give and connect, right? As opposed to attack and, and you know, uh, have this blunt energy towards each other. Then I saw an image of uh, like looking from above of a long line of people, like a snaking line of people under the hot sun standing and waiting for hours. And at the end of the line, there's a tiny little woman sitting there. And all these people are lining up to get hugs. And she is actually a real person. She's the hugging saint of India, right? The Amma. She's called Amma. Mm-hmm. And, and that's true. That's what she does. She goes around the world. She'll come to Boston in July, August every year. And people stand for eight hours in the sun. And they, they get a hug. And she doesn't even speak much English. So they're just a silent hug. But they feel this deep, unconditional love. And they walk away in tears. And the message that I got as this scene was being shown to me, was all these people could be hugging each other as they stand in line, that they don't need to go there and find what they're looking for, that we all have within us what we need to heal for each other. Raj, I want to ask you, what does healing mean to you now? Well, the way I've thought about healing is to is to reduce suffering, is to elevate joy, bring more joy, and to promote healthy growth. Now, that's how I've defined it in the context of a business. Can we reduce suffering in people's lives by meeting their real needs? Can we bring joy in their lives, whether they're employees or customers or communities? And can we promote healthy growth as opposed to unhealthy growth, which is you know, this constant striving to sell more and you know, make more money and so forth? And when you were going through that spiritual awakening in multiple dimensions of healing, what was your inner voice at that time? What were you telling? Any self-talk that you remember? My self-talk was just, oh my God, oh my God, just the just the awakening to new realizations. You know, I was just open to being shown certain truths, right? And I just remember, you know, with my eyes closed and just saying, oh, my God, oh, my God, you know, like those kinds of feelings all night long. Was it a scary? No, no, it was very loving and beautiful. And then the third one, the most profound one that came to me that night was these four words floating in my vision and saying, this is what the world of business needs and the world of what we all need to heal. And the words were love, innocence, simplicity, and truth. And it came as a preformed acronym, the LIST. Like these are the healing essentials, T-H-E, and then list, love, innocence, simplicity, and truth. And then it kind of got deeper into each of those, right? I mean, we are creatures of love. We are supposed to manifest. That's that's the most human quality. And yet we we have lost sight of that, you know, in, in our work, in our in our ordinary lives. You know, we don't we, we operate from fear, we operate from uh a scarcity uh, mindset, using each other, etc. So we're not operating, or we have conditional love. Like my father's love was always conditional. If you do what I tell you to do, or if I approve of what you do, then you have my love. Otherwise, you're nobody to me. Right? So that returning to pure, unconditional love as our natural state, that was important. Then innocence, which I had already been exposed to through my earlier journey. Right, but we have lost our innocence, <laughs> and uh, we need to reclaim it. You know, one of the things that I've realized is that we're all born with certain qualities, 
And innocence is common to all of us. And then we might have some, you know, like I had more trust and idealism and whatever, right? And somebody else might be born with other qualities. At some point in life, you have to go back and claim those qualities. Otherwise, then you can, then they serve you. Otherwise, you know, in my case, I rejected them because my father made me feel that those were all uh, liabilities or weaknesses, right? So I rejected my own qualities. So to the extent that I knew myself, I despised myself. So you have to go back, know yourself, and then love yourself. You have to reclaim, claim those gifts that you were given in this life. So that's the inner, inner sense is something we were all given, and therefore we all need to reclaim and operate from that place. Right? Again, not a naive, unknowing, helpless innocence, but a strong, loving, knowing innocence that I will not knowingly abuse anybody. I will not knowingly exploit anybody. You know? Yeah, the opposite of corruption, basically. And then uh, simplicity, we have made everything too complicated. Uh, we hide behind the complexity. Like if you look at what happened uh, you know, in the 2008 financial crisis, it was all this manufactured complexity. Right, all these instruments, financial derivatives, and so forth that uh, we were using to confuse other people and make money, you know, for some. And then the last is truth. What is our commitment to the truth? You know, I got a PhD in marketing. You know, where where does truth fit into marketing? Where does truth fit into our politics? Etc. I mean, we just have lost sight of that, right? I mean, Gandhi's autobiography was called "My Experiments with Truth." I mean, truth is one of the the highest values. So anyway, that was the the sort of big takeaway from that night list, love, innocence, simplicity, and truth. So I'm still processing all these things. I'm still understanding and interpreting them. And I'm writing about them in this new book that uh, just about uh, half finished now. Do you have other healing modalities on a daily, weekly basis? I would say the two things that I do, one is a presence practice which is something that we also have in the Shakti book. And there's a recording of it on the web as well, if you search my name and presence practice, which basically grounds you in the present moment, makes you fully available to the present moment for whatever seeks to emerge. It has a number of affirmations that are about, first of all, you know, there's a, there's a breathing aspect to it. There's a visualization of your mind as a crystal clear lake on top of a mountain. You know, and, and then you picture that, and then you have these affirmations that I have nothing to defend, I have nothing to promote, I have nothing to fear. And then the only reality of this moment is that I am here now, and everything I need comes to me, everything I need flows through me, everything I need is within me. It's a sequence of things like that. And you know, I find that if I do that out loud, or sometimes I do that for an audience before I speak, in about five or seven minutes, you can really transform somebody's state and make them fully present. And I can do it silently within myself if I need to, you know, if I'm facing something challenging, then I can get into that state of presence. So that's a practice I recommend strongly. It's very practical and very impactful. At what time do you practice this? I do that as needed. You know, I think the, the, the idea of that is ultimately that should become our default mode. Right, that we should always be in a state of full presence. Until you get there, then I use it, as I said, when I feel especially the need. Let's say I'm having a phone call with the dean, or let's say I'm giving an important talk, or I have a uh, difficult conversation that I need to have with somebody. 
if I get into that state of presence through that practice, then I know it makes a difference. So ultimately, the idea is to cultivate that as a default state. So you can use it any time, but I, I tend to now, I think I'm, I'm in that state, I, I would say, more often than not. And therefore, I don't need to do it as regularly, but I do it still when I have a significant. And what do you do in the first 60 to 90 minutes of your waking up in the morning? Well, you know, it varies. Right now, because I'm writing this book, pretty much I wake, make a cup of tea and then I just sit down. I find that those are very productive hours in the morning for me. And my subconscious has been working as I slept and that I have fresh insights in the morning that I may not have had at, uh, at the end of the day. Do you write on computer or just free flow writing? Mostly on the computer, but also, okay, I have three or four different ways that I do it. Sometimes I will write just on paper using a mechanical pencil. I find that that flows much better. So sometimes I'll do that. But for the bulk of my writing, what I do is I start with a mind map. And I create, a mind map is a uh, sort of a visual depiction. And actually, I learned that from Michael Gelb, I know, who's been a guest on your show. And Michael, yeah. uh, Michael is one of the leading ex experts on mind mapping. So I've been using it for 25 years, probably. Right? So you, you actually have the central idea, whatever it is you're trying to write about, and then you have all these different branches, and then sub-branches from those branches, and then connections across. And what you can do, instead of imposing a strict order as we do on a linear outline, you just start putting ideas out, right? And, and then you can fit them into the appropriate branches, and then you can drag branches around to, to get them ultimately in the right flow. So it's a great tool for brainstorming as well as then organizing your thoughts. Could you give us a small concrete example of mind mapping that you have used recently in your writing? Well, I have a mind map for every chapter of the book. You know, I'm looking at I'm looking at one right over here, chapter 10, Purpose in the Poconos. You know, this is when I discovered my purpose, right? And so, you know, it, it starts with a particular scene that I paint when I'm sitting in this writing retreat with my co-author and it's, David, I can't see my computer screen. Why? Because I had tears in my eyes because I'm writing stories about these companies that are showing such deep humanity, right? And that's when I felt my purpose found me and then I back up to talk about what led up to that, right? That book project and how it survived and then what happened that day in more detail and then how that it led me to you know discover my bliss. I had been following my heartbreak. So anyway, I've got all of these things laid out as, as bullets, right, in this sort of circular. I mean, so it's on a rectangular piece of paper, but it starts in the top right and then continues clockwise all the way around. And so what I find is the more time I spend on creating the mind map, and the more I fine-tune that, the more the chapter will flow when I start writing because it will have a... A log it all the key points will be covered. It'll have a logical structure and flow to it. It's like an unfolding uh, story. And then what I do nowadays for this kind of a project, especially where I'm all I'm just trying to extract what's already in my mind, that I will then take this uh, this mind map and I will dictate using voice recognition dictation software called Dragon, naturally speaking. And I basically just dictate this chapter. And within an hour or two, I'll have five to 7,000 words. 
in a document, which becomes a pretty good first draft of that chapter. That is interesting. Yeah. And after that, then I edit on paper and, you know, I keep fine tuning it. But it, it you know, the biggest hurdle in writing is to get the first draft out and get all of your ideas on paper. And not everybody can have access to you and Michael Gelb. So could you tell us some resources on mind mapping that we can go and learn more about it online? Sure. I use, I mean, I used to do it manually by hand, but I've discovered now these software tools are much better. Michael, I think, still does it manually by hand. But the one that I use is called uh, Mind Manager. One word, Mind Manager. And it's really powerful. It works very well. And there's all the tutorials and everything else, you know, to learn how to do it. And it's pretty simple. I mean, once you get the hang of it, it's not uh, it's not a complicated software. Yes. But uh, I strongly recommend that. And then, like I said, for a writing project where you're just trying to organize your thoughts and they're already in you, and you just need to get them out, this, this sequence of mind mapping and then dictating and now the dictation software is so accurate, right? It's like 98% accurate that it just, it it, it compresses the time and it, it just, uh, it eases the process so dramatically for me. But if it's, a, if it's something that requires a lot of research, you know, then maybe there's other modalities that might, I think the mind mapping still works, but then you might have to, you know, maybe you're not in a position to dictate as readily. I think for me, because I do so much speaking, I'm just used to articulating my thoughts. It comes more naturally to me. So I can sit in front of a microphone and just uh, dictate. And that's yes. how I've done about five or six books. And you have co-authored a lot of your books with other amazing writers. So are there some principles, rules, structure, frameworks to write a book with another human being? I would say no. It varies by each project. So two of my books have been with CEOs, John Mackey of Whole Foods and then Bob Chapman of Barry Waymiller. And in those cases, you know, they're not writers, right? So my role in those projects was really to be more of the writer. And so it was really about extracting insights and then adding my own perspectives and then putting that uh, down on paper in those situations. Other projects like Firms of Endearment, I had David Wolf, who's a wonderful writer. And so he and I carved up the chapters. You know, once we did the outline, we, we divided up the chapters and we each wrote the first drafts of, of our chapters and then exchanged them with each other. And in the process of writing The Healing Organization, and I'm going to read two lines that you put out there in your book. Quote, Michael Gelb showed me that I could be a creative and whole person, not just the left-brained, hyper-analytical type that I had pigeonholed myself to be. He helped me gain the courage to trust my own instincts and listen to my inner voice so that I could eventually discover and fulfill my own unique process. So, Raj, what did Michael tell you to just trust your instincts? Well, so uh, the way I met Michael was that uh, my brother-in-law had given me an audio cassette uh, course that Michael had created on mind mapping. And so I listened to that, and then I, and this was in 1997. So I think the web was just starting. So I, I somehow found Michael, and I found that he lived not far from where I lived, in the D.C. area. So I went and met him, and I learned more about him. I was also running an executive MBA program at the time for George Mason University. So I decided to hire Michael to come and teach a three-day program called High Performance Learning. 
which was based upon a lot of the books that he had written, right? How to how to think like Leonardo da Vinci, how to innovate like Edison. You know, he, he had written books about juggling, about chess. Yes. Uh, you know, all kinds of things, right? And so he was all about creativity and unleashing the human genius and human potential. And I had until that point thought of myself as, you know, we are come engineers and you're kind of left brain analytical, <laughs> you know, your whole life. And you kind of think I'm not creative. I'm not a creative type. You know? That was me. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of us get, and we kind of get pushed into engineering in India, don't we? <laughs> All of it. What the name about? That's where the jobs are. So you go there, and then and then do MBA to double your salary. Right, exactly. That's what I did. Yeah. So so just being in that program with Michael and awakening this dormant right brain, and recognizing that I had the yeah I couldn't draw or you know create art, but yeah I could think in a creative way. I could create things, ideas, programs. So based upon that, then I decided to revamp the entire executive MBA program and create a brand new curriculum and integrate all kinds of cutting edge things into it. And so I was starting to express my creativity that way. So that kind of then, and I was also almost 40, I was having my midlife crisis moment as you know, I was just about 40 years old then, 39. So I was starting to think about my life and my work in a different way. And you know, what, what, what am I really going to do? my career. So all of that came at the opportune time. And so that's how I met Michael. And then years later, we said we need we should write a book together. And then, you know, I he had done about 15 books, and I had done about a dozen books by that time. And we kept saying, we just need to find a, a topic we can write on. We played around with multiple ideas. And all of them were kind of coming from our head, right? Five or six different things, and we were sending them to uh, an editor who I really liked. And finally, he said, you know, Raj, you don't write a book when you think it's time to write a book, that it's been two years and I need to write another book. You write a book when you have an idea that is so compelling that it has to get out into the world, right? So what idea is so compelling that you need to get it out into the world? And then as I thought about it from that lens, and that means what is it that speak, speaks to your soul and your heart, not just your head? That's when I got went back to that healing notion. Because, you know, there was something about that idea. I think all of us are in need of healing. And so something about that, when I had used healing as an acronym for the qualities of a great purpose. But then you realize that there's a deeper message there uh, in this. And so then I started to create that book proposal. And, and that, that really, you know, that did emanate from a deeper place. You know, your body does not lie. When you, when you have a physical reaction to an idea, when you get chills, when you get tears, when you get some other physical manifestation, that means your body is telling you there's something of significance here. Stay with it. So that's what we did. And then in this particular book, it was my original idea was that Michael and I, being experienced writers, would just divide up the chapters and do the normal thing. But he said, you know, this, this, this whole idea and this, this thing is coming through your consciousness. It's a culmination of all these books you've written and conscious capitalism and firms of endearment and all of these things. And so his insight was that the first draft of the book needed to come through me. And then he would then take it from there and, and work on those chapters. So that's how we wrote this book. I did a rough first draft of, uh, of every chapter and then sent it to him and then he would then you know, work on it. And, and May I ask you a follow-up question on this? Yeah. What do you mean by words coming from soul versus words coming from the consciousness? 
I think the idea of the book coming from the head versus coming from a deeper place. Is it just a purely intellectual exercise? Or is it your soul trying to express itself in the world? Got it. Coming from a deeper place, right? I think Richard Barrett, my dear friend Richard Barrett, has written beautifully about this, right? It's all about soul consciousness. And, and what, what is our, each of us has come here with a unique gift to give the world, expressed through our soul consciousness. That's what we need to get back to. You know, we spend, in my case, decades, you know, in school, right, learning and going more and more into your head. And at some point, you need to uh, go back to your soul and your essence. And that's really what this book is about that I'm writing now. It's about connecting to your true self, knowing yourself, coming to a place of loving, and uh, respecting, accepting, and loving yourself, and then being yourself in the world, manifesting that uh, into the world. Uh, and that's where we come into our personal power and impact. I read about your mentor, Jack Shet. You have mentioned his name at a couple of places in your work. Why is he your mentor and what qualities does he have that you seek him as your mentor? Well, you know, in the world of academia, I was kind of a fish out of water. I mean, I did not really find a natural harmony with, with the culture of academia, business academia, that I became somewhat accidentally part of. And I had no real role models or uh, people that I would seek to emulate in my PhD program at Columbia. And it was not until I met Jack Shedd that I found somebody who personified the kind of presence and the kind of work that, that resonated with me. So he was doing work that was interesting and insightful, but also impactful in the world of practice. And so he wasn't just a pure academic. He was working with companies. He was working with leaders. He was shifting actual practices in the world. And so that, that broader canvas on which to play, that was a big part. And, and also coming at it with a kind of a consciousness, you know, social conscience, trying to make the world better through business. So all of those things which were latent in me, I saw them manifested in him, in his work, and they, he was enormously successful and respected. And so he kind of took me under his wings. I mean, my career was going nowhere. <laughs> Because I was just unhappy and I, yeah, I didn't even respect my own profession. I thought, who needs more marketers in the world? I said, my father got a PhD in plant breeding, cytogenetics. He's trying to cure world hunger. And I got a PhD in marketing. I'm just trying to sell more potato chips. <laughs> you know, I said, this is, I, did, I, I did not respect. I kind of had a sense of shame about my work. That I spent all this time and effort you know, doing something that's really not that important. <laughs> and uh, therefore, I was always looking for a better way. Right. And, and then connecting with JAG helped me then get on track and start to do some things that were meaningful. And then eventually then led to, led to all, all of this work. And Raj, what is the specific impact you want to leave on this world? Well, I define my purpose as to bring heart, healing and soul to business and leadership so that we can build a better world for all. You know, I think there's no more lev greater leverage that you can have then to shift a leader because through that leader then you impact hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of lives of people that they lead. And so if I can help shift that, if I can bring that consciousness to leaders and get them to see their role 
differently, get them to define the purpose of their business differently, get them to operate from love and not fear. If we can do all those things, and that I think is the biggest way to positively impact the world. Business is the most important institution in terms of impact in the world, and leaders are the ones who have the biggest impact on the business. And so that's where you know we need to focus. And I would like to underscore one very important thing before we conclude our conversation. So I read that your vision is to have the other side of the river near your mother's village return to being green and blue again, to have the water restored to its pristine beauty and to return to your father's village and hear the birds sing once again. So do you need any support from me or from our listeners to fulfill your vision, Raj? (laughs) Well, I think all of us starting to elevate our consciousness and to think more deeply about the impacts that we have in the world to, to, you know, my new book is called Awaken. And I think the challenge is for us to not only awaken, but to remain awake and have a sense of urgency. You know, we are in the what's called the decade of determination, where unless we shift dramatically in this decade, we are heading down a very destructive path on this planet. So there's a sense of urgency about it that we need to recognize that we don't have a lot of time to make a difference. And secondly, in each of our lives, you know, the sense of urgency, how much time do we have? We are born with about 26,000 days in our lives. That's the span of a typical human life. And if you look at your working life as part of that, I mean, you know, we're down to a few thousand now for me left. <laughs> and so within that time, we have to live as intensely and as lovingly as possible. And we have to stay, you know, and you might do that for a few hours and then you go back into your trance and you go back into your patterns, right? So one of the things I love about these psychedelic experiences is that they quiet your ego. They shut down your what's called the default mode network and they allow you to see connections and possibilities that you don't see otherwise. And I think our challenge and our necessity is for us to stay awake and stay connected to that realization and that energy so that we can use, you know, we have limited finite time here but within that finite time, we humans have infinite potential and possibilities. You know, we are divine beings. We can create. No other creature on this planet can create. We can create. And, and that's really what we need to be living into rather than forgetting. We tend to forget who we are, what we are. Do you have any closing thought or anything you would like to share with our listeners? I believe every one of us can live our lives as healers. So it doesn't matter what profession you have. You happen to be an engineer, but I think you're a healer because of the work you're doing through this podcast, for example. You can be a lawyer, you can be a doctor, you can be a leader, a manager, a professor. Think of your role in this life as healing, bringing joy, reducing suffering, promoting healthy growth. And the world needs an incredible amount of healing at every level. And that is the need of the hour. And think of business as a way of scaling love and care in the world. That is so beautiful. Thank you so much, Raj, for this beautiful, awakened, spiritual conversation. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Nishant. And thank you for doing this podcast. This episode is brought to you by my own Friday newsletter, Every Friday, I share a newsletter which describes my new learnings. 
And these learnings can be in the form of new books I'm reading, different podcasts and blogs I'm exploring to learn new topics such as trauma, healing, relationships, mindfulness, psychology, and much, much more. You can find the newsletter link at my website, https colon slash slash nishangarg.me n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g dot me once again n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g dot me and thank you so much for listening to this show thank you for listening to this podcast episode today if you did enjoy this please subscribe to this podcast on apple podcast or you can visit https colon slash slash nishangarg.me n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g dot me you can also share this episode with your loved ones to help them live a fulfilled life you are not alone in this journey we all struggle in life there is no shame in talking about it i go through my highs and lows i get depressed and these practices help me in living a resilient life you can also do this you've got this don't judge yourself you are doing the best you can and thank you so much again